Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We are from the rock and roll band Phil Graves. And we've sufficiently decompressed from the Ford Fiesta, got the rising of the moon out of our heads, (laughs) and we're ready to talk about something else that's really captured our imagination, the return to the cinema. Yeah, for sure. Um, You actually went to the cinema ages ago, didn't you? (laughs) Like when it was... (laughs) It's a very sparsely attended screening of Dark Waters, and I was really bowled over by the cinematic experience so much to proclaim it a masterpiece and saying how much I loved it. I guess just from that emotional payoff. Yeah, fair. I watched uh, Dark Waters from Home. I thought it was okay. More procedural and prosaic, I think, than than you did. But I also recently watched Safe by Todd Haynes. And I thought that was... uh, that left more of an imprint in my mm. imagination, I think. Uh, but the BFI is back open. You went to the BFI, I think, on the day that it opened. I went to the first screening. Yeah, great. Um, just because I wanted to see Battleship Potemkin. <laughs> but I didn't realise like, what I was doing. But um, it was well attended, you know. Mm. But socially distanced. Every screen's got a different entrance. Great. What screen was it in? We- Two. The, the one with the piano That's in. Cool. But yeah, yeah. it was a really loud... Hans Eisler score that was part of the German National Film Labs restoration. Cool. I um obviously seen it when I was younger, but mm-hmm. like maybe not when I was so interested in film theory and you know film comparison and stuff. I watched it from home, tried to find like a reasonable copy. At first, I thought the best copy I found was the Pet Shop Boys scored one, mm. um, which sounded sort of cool. But then I found another one with more of a traditional, like sort of military bent to it. Can't believe um, they did that Pet Shop Boys one in Trafalgar Square. That's where they premiered it. Damn, when free screening. Two thousand and four. Cool soundtrack. I guess with these like retroactive soundtracks, they're always like always end up being like really fucking industrial, don't they? <laughs> well, that's yeah, that is often the case. Um, there's a good Roger Ebert review where he talks about going to some like random outdoor screening of it, where this like post rock band called Concrete did the soundtrack, and that was like the screening for him that like killed it. You know, Damn. but I guess it's one of the most like re soundtracked films. Um, so many people have done soundtracks to mm-hmm. it, um, and it's often screened. Because it's one of the most important films ever made. Oh, I mean, it's a masterpiece. My first viewing of it was at the uh, Barfly when I went to see... In Camden? Yeah, when I went to see Joe DJ and they just had it on the TV. I was like, oh, I swear, I know what this is or whatever. And it was the Battleship Potemkin <laughs> when he got to, Weird. got to the, the classic iconic sequences or whatever. Um, there was a classic video when we were younger, uh, mm. like fan-made music video of Arcade Fire's Intervention set to the Odessa Step sequence from Battleship Potemkin. That was, uh, you know, I think maybe my first exposure to it many years ago now. <laughs> I also remember there was a My Body is a Cage edit with the um, the end of The Good, The Bad. And the yeah, I've seen that one as well. <laughs> but yeah, Battleship, Battleship Bajomkin. Yes. Honestly, iconic. I can't imagine a better film to herald your formal non-Dark Waters return to uh, the BFI, the most important film institute in the world. Absolutely. They've got... Um, <laughs> and in screen one, it was Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. So... Communist yeah, propaganda, great. either way. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. It's not a long film, is it, Battleship Tonkin? It's, uh... it's any it's any length you want it to be, really, <laughs> these days with the YouTube speed options. But no, I guess it's about 70 minutes. Yeah. Um, classic snap. five relo, you know? Yeah. Um... <laughs> um, it's such a snappily told story. You mm. know? I mean, it's episodic, but like draws out time a lot. I mean, it's rela- relating to something very much so in the public consciousness at the time, the 1905 mutiny... 
like seminal moment in uh, you know pre-revolutionary Russia. I've been really enjoying reading the Trotsky 1905 recently. Yeah, great. <laughs> L- listeners, get involved. Yeah, don't be afraid um, of the of the uh, tag. Still a few years away from uh, you know the death of the Tsardom in Russia, but. No. Yeah, but it was. Did it ever really end? Pretty cool. Ah, <laughs> well, um, no, I mean it's back, but it did, it did, it did end for a bit. <laughs> it's a pretty cool, pretty cool first attempt, at least that uh, that 1905. Pretty cool film grays line on the 1905 <laughs> revolutions. Um, Trotsky got a motto credit, which I've never seen before. A what? A motto. There's like motto by Leon Trotsky at the end, cool. which was in like a. It wasn't in the original credits, but it was in the German film lab. Credits, I guess. Cool. Post film credits. I was like, oh. Yeah. Shout out. Yeah. Yeah. Is your Skype picture. <laughs> long time. Icy pick mm. for uh, uh, Avatar, I'd say. He looks quite similar to, I mean, Eisenstein is great. There's so many great photographs of him, but he looks quite similar to how are they, in the Peter Greenaway film about Cave Viva Mexico, the guy they cast to play. Do you know about this? No. Ah. <laughs> what? It came out a few years ago. Yes. Yeah, he made a, a sort of like comedic biopic of Eisenstein set exclusively in those like 30 days and wow yeah well we'll get on to that in a bit let's dwell on the majesty of um, love you Greenaway yeah yeah for sure for sure but yeah Battleship Temkin yeah so I mean it is as you said an episodic film um uh, it follows in the most rigorous manifesting way possible the uh you know the teleology of that that like moment in Russian history you know, from uh, the sailors at the beginning being forced to, like, eat maggoty meat to, you know, the raising of the glorious red flag at the end. In my screening, they'd colorized the red flag and it looked, you know, awesome. Um, Eisenstein was famous for that. I guess he, Ivan the Terrible 2, he actually, like, painted the film stock. Yeah. Cool. Um, but, yeah, the colorized, I guess that was one of the, the nice, nice bit of red. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, watching all these, like, Ford films recently, like Long Voyage Home, they were expendable. Um, Even December 7th, I guess we spoke about his relation to silent films. And I think when I was trying to research this, we raised a lot of questions about distribution of Soviet films and access to them in America in, like, the 20s. Like, I don't think really much. Battleship Potemkin was banned in the UK until 56, 57. Yeah, I mean, it's provocative stuff. They'd ban it today if they could. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. They'd ban I, it in Debenhams, you know. This occupation strike in Debenhams yesterday. Fair enough. Pretty cool. Didn't Debenhams. know about that. Yeah. Uh, Much respect. But I guess the thing about this film is it does, and a lot of the other films we'll be talking about today, it does instill on you, you know, the revolutionary fervour, as well as being like an astonishing aesthetic artefact and a seminal... Um, you know, formal exercise in in filmmaking. Eisenstein was like the guy for, I guess, articulating the various rhythms, politics, all these questions in the composition of film. And it's so manifest in his work. Yeah, reading all these Eisenstein writings, I've read quite a lot of them before for, you know, study or whatever, but reading them for fun, I guess it is a bit of a fun read, but he is so rigorous I guess like reading like Deleuze or someone like that is so like like logic diagrams and these kinds of stuff. But his theory, and it was a theory, you know, Podovkin had like very different theories or whatever, also based on the Marxist dialectic. Yeah, so central. Absolutely the forefront of everything that governs all of this in a really interesting way. 
But yeah, he wrote so much about his own films. Yeah, an extremely prolific writer. And, you know, the model was what he is. As you said, he referenced his own works as exemplars, um, which is classic. It's hilarious. Uh, and But it's also instructive. And, Certainly. you know, there's a, obviously a very close relationship, therefore, between the books and the, or the, or the tracts. Because, uh, you know, these books are like collections of pamphlets translated in the, you know, 40s or 70s. At, you know, take your pick. But such an interesting exercise to engage with it on that level. But it must have been astonishing to watch it in the cinema at a BFI. Although I mean to fetishise going to the cinema at the time. <laughs> right now, it's not really a responsible thing mm. to do. But I have been bare, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I know, like, first time seeing it on a big screen. The image is uh, supposed to be writ large. And also you can sort of zone in more to the, mm. the rhythm. Mm. Um, and the soundtrack by Hans Eisler was fucking loud, you know. Like the, loud, yeah. the loudest thing I'd heard in a while. Just on, on like talking, thinking about the editing and like the composition of like mm. these like frames in in conjunction, like on the cinema screen. We we're talking earlier about you know what what's like what it means to like see these in the cinema, or, like to watch them in general, and the technique and what it does, and you know it's about guiding your eye um, towards these like sort of or and even like the disjuncture within that when you're looking somewhere and then something happens like you know another part of the screen like on the cinema screen that must be so much more visceral than like you know i watched it on youtube at, at sure. home which is you know but there is one way you're supposed to interpret these images as well isn't well it? for sure it's hard to mistake or whatever well yeah i know really goebbels are. liked it but like it's hard from a technical perspective supposedly yeah um but I feel like this, all of Eisenstein's work probably like Strike, obviously, which was the first film I ever saw at the BFI. They had a Eisenstein season when I was like 16, 15, went with Dominic Curran. Legend. Comrade. Yeah, that must have been great. I've only, I must admit, I've only seen a bit of Strike and it was on my phone while Sham was watching Real Housewives or something. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, that's the real dialectic in it. Don't understand uh, it. Feel it. <laughs> We'll get to that later. Um, um, it's foundational, I, though. Where they're inventing, he's inventing the theory, theorizing it. It's so different to um, Zygovertov, like Boris Kaufman's work, in terms of like cinematographically. Mm. And obviously, it's like it was very encouraged, like in the first ten years of Soviet Russia, like post-revolution, like for people to be like really going hard at like for all the great qualities of cinema. I mean, this is praxis writ large. Exactly, exactly. Um, in terms of mass communication, co uh, dissemination of political messaging, and aesthetic innovations. Like, these are married in such a fascinating way. We haven't even talked about any moments from this film, really. Yeah, the start, and that's the like... irony, I guess, because you're led to thinking about it as some sort of, you know, all films are edited together. But I guess when you think about Eisenstein, like... That's such like a totemic aspect of it. But yeah, iconographically, symbolically, when you look at a single frame, it's like, rah. There are so many moments saying these words that are flashing up into my head. It's crass to list them, but, you know, it's, it really is made up of like monumental close-ups, long shots, you know. I guess it's better to not describe because we you got to watch it if you haven't seen it before. Go check it out. The most famous shot, I guess, is the uh, Odessa Steps pram shot where a pram is like going down the steps during this like very tragic, chaotic 
uh, confrontation between uh, the state and uh, the people. What's funny is I can't think of the actual image you're talking about because, you know, we're reading so much about how shots are cells yeah. as opposed to shots. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think there's really one shot. Well, in you the... want to watch The Untouchables, The Simpsons. I don't know. There's so many. The, the, I mean, Mo Green getting shot in the through the glasses at the end of The Godfather. Yeah. And the way the end of The Godfather cross-cuts like the baptism with the murders or whatever. Mm. I don't know. D.W. Griffith was like, you know, sorry to bring bring him up, but he was considered like, you know, the father of like narrative and editing. I'm using like yeah. uh, inverted commas with my fingers for cross-cutting sequences. And like, that's how you tell a story. And a lot of the work that these people, like Dovshenko and Eisenstein were both like recutting intolerance and birth of a nation for years uh, yeah, forever, for years for their lives for or whatever. trying to demonstrate i guess like the cooler show effect i don't mm. want this to be too like much of a history lesson yeah. or whatever <laughs> but it's so essential because they totally developed well eisenstein totally had his shit down pat by the time he was making like battleship potemkin watching it with sound with a soundtrack like i guess all the soundtracks mostly are like composed to the editing because mm. the editing is so deliberate like there are a few um like what's the transitional phase in sound film where uh it's like sound division or some shit where right. like sound effects yeah. will be included so in the soundtrack i listened to i think it was the same one uh there were like gunshots when people fire guns sure um but at the same time like yeah there's a very clear relationship between like the rhythm of the editing the rhythm of motion in the frame and the the music yeah I mean, Tchaikovsky had cannons in his shit and stuff. Like yeah. That. Um, God, I could talk about this shit for two hours. You know? Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> um, I think we will have to do a Eisenstein episode or like, I, I guess, a Soviet films, like sort of preliminary survey. This episode will serve that function to a certain extent. I guess one thing that's interesting to me, having, again, blah, having watched all these Ford films recently and, you know, watching some pre-code films, watching... Um, you know, Dr. Mabuse and some German, you know, from uh, midnight to morning and stuff like that. I think Eisenstein and these like Russian, I don't even know, what, what, what would you call them? Formalists? Sure. Uh, I don't know. All these like appellations are obviously redundant and, you know, someone will say, oh no, that actually means something else. But basically, I guess the innovation is attributed to them, but maybe the irony is that like, they sort of mastered the sort of relationship between explication in text and like praxis in in it. Whereas like obviously people are like making right. these like narrative films that are like completely coherent from the nineteen you know, the late fucking nineteenth century. You know, I I guess in the Ford episode we were primarily talking about commercial film, but you know, film before Eisenstein wasn't completely discon discontinuous. It could be coherent, but there is like certain like magic and mythology here that affects his reputation and how we view these films. Well, I guess the individual images are so sick yeah, as well. <laughs> so um, iconic in the best way. As propaganda, as I said, is yeah. fire. Yeah, yeah. But I think the stuff that he was interested in in terms of the theories of editing, which is one of the many things he was interested in. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's reductive to imply that that's his only, uh, you know, thesis. <laughs> But for filmmakers, that's definitely it's definitely a primary source. Um, even though reading in a lot of that Eisenstein stuff, how much that he was influenced by like Flaubert and like Kabuki theatre, 
and symphonic music at the time in in terms of like trying to capitulate that Lenin quote about you know film being the the most powerful medium yeah I think when when you think about all these like early 20th century movements so all these people are so interdisciplinary and their theories are intersect as well so it's like such a you know it's weird to think of uh Eisenstein as like such like a quintessential like film theorist where it like sits within this like theatrical painterly you know operatic tradition as well like there's so much going on like I can't wait to like do a more on this basically it's, it's like so interesting it's interesting how he yeah more th- more so than like Bresson or someone like that who was so rejecting of like other art forms and appropriateness for the cinema screen but Bresson uh you know was a televisualist as, as, as well yeah. um and maybe that's just like a stages of history thing everyone's at Hitchcock Wells Ford they all rated Battleship Potemkin pretty much higher than anything else on its own terms it's clearly the most successful film that's the thing i want to know when did john ford see battleship pajonkin but that's what i want to know was it before he made the long voyage home like when he came to london sorry the john yeah, ford yeah, fiesta yeah. part two yeah, fuck, um, fuck when, he came to, <laughs> when he came to london in that lindsay anderson book and lindsay's like oh is there anything at like the bfi that you want to watch like i can organize a screening for you and he's like Ivan the Terrible, we never got to see that in America. We haven't seen it yet for the pod, but... Yeah, we've seen some of it, Yeah, we and we've had a few aborted attempts. But yeah, I mean, we do have more as in science to talk about. Definitely. I watched Alexander Nevsky recently. Yeah, I... We keep buying the same fucking DVDs in charity shops, because I message you, like, a photograph, like, perhaps, like, holding up my... What, what has emerged to be a shite copy of alexander nevsky that i also got you we got the same uh, copy yeah the, you, the version on youtube comrades is better than the version in charity shops and again like uh we so, who's the guy that did uh the leah adaptation because yeah because um great filmmaker sorry what's the composer prokofiev prokofiev was it prokofiev no 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 no, oh, no. I hate okay. to, i'm not an expert in this shit but shostakovich did the music for the kazintsev shakespeare adaptations this is prokofiev Yep, sorry, that's what I'm getting confused about. It's cool that they intersect, because you think about these people as, like, vestiges of, like, a bygone, like, playhouse age, like, with these, like, crazy, like, productions, but, like, they're part of, like, the studio film industry in Soviet Russia, which is fucking cool. Absolutely. Um, um, it's interesting, to, oh, I don't want to start talking about Abel Gons on this thing, but, like, his, his theories of editing and uh, montage were really radical, even reacting against Eisenstein when you watch like the first sequence of Napoleon. But that stuff was like so monumental in a sort of Western Europe way compared to this stuff. Anyway, again, irrelevant. But that's like symphonic, like that's designed to be played with the symphony orchestra as well. Um, definitely one of the most interesting things about Alexander Nevsky, which he made in the late 30s, um, like directly when World War Two was starting to tell like the last great story about like Russians fucking up Germans. Mm. Um, it was made in collaboration with Prokofiev and the, sa- the soundtrack is like essential to the editing and he's really trying to, you know. It's in like a monument of like national spirit and like... Sure, but know, also but... for, the, you know, developing the theory still in like a, in a baby driver S- way. Synthetic, yeah. Sorry, syncretic, I suppose is the cool. word I'm reaching for. But, um, yeah, great. It's um, like Baby Driver. Um, yeah. 
It is. It is. Uh, as opposed to having the implied rhythm of the shots. But yeah, I mean, that battle on the ice sequence, again, is like, goes on for like 30 minutes. It's incredibly famous. I mean, I can't wait to watch it, man. It looks really dope. Off the back of your visit to BFI to see Battleship for John Gunn, uh, we thought, well, you recommended to me that I watch Eisenstein's incompleted film, Que Viva Mexico, that he started shooting in the 30s. Not one of the six films that he did complete. <laughs> yeah. um, basically, they ran out of money and film stock um, shooting this uh, anthropological tract about life in Mexico, or the Narod Mexiki, as Grigory Alexandrov referred to it in his like sort of framing monologues in the 1979 version that is the like the sort of version that we can watch now. Yes, there are other sort of like reconstructed versions, but this was just sitting, I guess because they loaned all the film stock from an American company, they just took ownership of it or whatever. Mm. I, it's like, I can't remember the chap's name, but like there was like an author that was like basically patronised this project uh, privately. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, eventually the stocks, the money, the project didn't, you know, they shot like loads of reels, so like 80 hours or some classic number. Um, Alexandrov is really interesting, I think, because as you say, he does introduce and outroduce this film. Frequent um, collaborator with Eisenstein yeah, from the co-director or whatever. Um, yeah, like Edward Tisse or, you know, just like one of these huge figures in Mossfilm or whatever. Which is the first national film company ever set up. All power to the film company. It's a travelogue as it exists or whatever. May not be the sort of portrait of another post-revolutionary society that it was maybe intended to be. Yeah, I guess it's important to note that, yeah, it's like vignettes. I'm telling like various different stories across different uh, social strata in Mexico. It's very anthropological in a sort of fascistic way. There's always someone strumming an acoustic guitar with, um, you know, like a, it's overdubbed, you know, but whatever. It's all very like sort of iconographic. Um, the last chapter was meant to deal with the 1910 revolution in Mexico, um, but they couldn't do it. It's reduced to a couple of stills. Um, and Alexandrov basically being like, this is what it was meant to culminate in. It actually culminates in probably the film's most astonishing sequence, the Day of the Dead sequence, but, I mean, it is just an epilogue from this sort of mishmash of footage that they shot. Yeah, as you say, the film as it stands is probably not satisfactory and doesn't. it's hard to make sense of as an Eisenstein film, certainly beyond the, like, very intense editing and, like, very deliberate framing. I guess... One of the most interesting differences is how it sort of fetishizes the like, it's not really ancient history because it was only like a few centuries before. It's early modern history. That's the sort of thing about uh, yeah. South American history. You imagine it's like ancient, like yeah, has, the pyramids or whatever. But yeah, it's like. It was like, yeah, 14th, 15th century, a lot of this stuff. But in the Russian stuff, they have no, they make a total break from it, which I guess is the point of the revolution. The history is the monstrosity or whatever. Whereas in Cave Viva Mexico, they're constantly like comparing the post-revolutionary society to like more ancient especially 
to do with forms and to do with like graphical forms. Mm, yeah, I mean, there are lots of shots composed of um, indigenous Mexicans like sort of standing next to statues yeah. that like sort of situate them within this uh, as like shapes more than as like psyches or Which is consciousnesses. But I mean, yeah, that's the thing. It's a sort of challenging film. But we, the way we watch it now, as I guess we've already said like three or four times now, because you can't not say it. You can't not couch like analysis within this. If thinking about that as an Eisenstein film, is that like, yeah, it seems divorced from like real intention or purpose, um, even though like it's a sort of simulacrum of the like Eisenstein ethos. But it's, we'll get onto more like, travelogue stuff later mm. in both the films we're going to talk about <laughs> but yeah. not being a mexican person i can't really imagine but i don't think this was like a great like it wasn't he wasn't like trying to like put mexico in cinema they already had like mm. a film industry or whatever it's like a very 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 particular look at mexico this is just 20th century anthropology you know sure, sure. especially when it's like state-sponsored yeah. I don't really know what the sort of parameters of that were. Like, you know, that's the whole thing in and of itself. But, Sounds a bit rogue, the uh, way they were making it, though. It sounds like they were just going around with a camera. Yeah, for sure. A bit December 7th. <laughs> but of course, it's, uh, of course. it is a super intriguing film, though. I just can't imagine it being a classic film in Mexico or whatever. Yeah. Or like when it was like the restoration of it or like the reconstruction of it in the late 70s, which was like a huge thing and loads of people that you you can enjoy reading, like talked about it and like all went to see it. But then even a lot of these films are like unbanned. His like works were unbanned in a lot of countries, like certainly not during like the Cold War era. But I think versus like Strike, October and Battleship for Temkin, especially, which are like straight up propaganda films, but they still retain all their potency watching it later on, literally 100 years later. Mm. Cave even Mexico, you're way more aware of the backstory. or Well, it's like a framing part of the whole way you receive the film. It's not looked at as a piece of anthropology, really. It's just looked at as like an event in film history. Mm. And it is interesting for him to have made it. But as you say, I guess it's like one of the most famous, like unsuccessful film projects ever up there with the other side of the wind. The yeah. Don Quixote film or whatever, um, <laughs> which I'm not going to watch whatever he came out with in the end. One of the vignettes in Caviva, Mexico, I found like pretty unpleasant, to be honest, uh, I guess for like animal cruelty or uh, ethical reasons, um, which centers on some bullfighters and that is the the bull ring is the locus of action well beyond like the shrine of the madonna or whatever the locus of action for that vignette is um the bull ring and you know blood sport is is obviously not cool again i feel like this like situates it within that like anthropological framework you know of like oh i'm writing about the people doing chicken fights or something yeah 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 yeah. it's a bit mm. but it's also the legacy of spanish colonialism for sure for sure it obviously and you know there are portuguese variants and when when i watched that scene i you know was on wikipedia looking at like modern interpretations of it and you know there are versions where you use like velcro versions where you just try and rile up the ball but you don't uh you know harm it again uh, still you know, doing it's, psychological damage to yeah the ball, it's still it's still not cool and it's quite discomforting and like for all the human travails we encounter in these films you know 
spare a thought for the beasties. For sure. Um, although I would recommend the John Ford ghost-directed bullfighting sequence in Bud Batica's The Bullfighter and the Lady, which I saw on The Cinephobe, and that shit was awesome. Yeah, and I don't believe any bulls were harmed in the making <laughs> of that movie, unlike Coppola's Apocalypse Now and also, obviously, Strike, both of which have, you know, Eisenstein montage as an essential part mm. of using the bullfighting to illustrate something else. Yeah, for sure. Uh, or using I, the slaughter of a bull to illustrate something else. Whereas this is I mean, you can still slice read of a, life. Yeah, you can still read allegory or like layers of meaning or like historical significance into it. That sort of causality, but it's still discomforting. Still recommend it. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a super interesting film. But And again, like comparing it to, to Battleship, like I guess, as you said maybe politically now the way like the bodies are deployed it's a sort of fetishistic approach that like maybe wouldn't be done today but at the same time on a sort of image level like it is like wavy <laughs> or whatever <laughs> like, it's as monumental as all his other films mm -hmm. yeah. in terms of framing yeah but again like it's not an eisenstein film you know i don't think it's made by the people though yeah for sure for sure <laughs> the committee whereas looking at the sort of scope of moss film or like russian filmmaking during the soviet union and it's not like it's worth acting as if eisenstein was like singular because he was in combat with loads of other filmmakers zigovertov dovshenko podovkin they all had like very different ideas and you know as a result eisenstein is sort of like the most respected historically or whatever but i mean the kaufman brothers was so foundational as well and influenced way more because their work was seen a lot more around the world and when you look at another piece of soviet propaganda or communist propaganda and another portrait of a latin american post-revolutionary society i am cuba is like equally breathtaking and could have been in as influential on cinema there's a famous quote from martin scorsese the great film preservationist and sometimes filmmaker <laughs> He was one, him and Coppola were like very instrumental in the restoration and the actual just publication of I Am Cuba by Mikhail Kalatazov from 1964. Mm. Uh, he also made The Cranes Are Flying, which is a huge like Soviet Thor film, very romantic. I know you're a big fan of that one. This is the only Kalatazov one I've seen, but uh, yeah, I guess the point is it sat on the shelf for like 30 years. And Scorsese says like, had it been released, it would have totally changed the look of cinema or... Maybe not the look, but the movement of cinema. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's one of the most kinetic films I've ever seen. And when I think about words to describe it, you know, dizzying, <laughs> it definitely comes to mind. Like, the camera is constantly moving. You're following um, motions, but also in a repetitive way. Like, um, again, like Haviva Mexico, it, I guess it uses anthropology as a framework to analyse you know, class struggle internationally. Um, it's made up of vignettes. One deals with, the first one deals with a young woman who um, basically has to prostitute herself to the sort of uh, like rich to American tourists. Mm. The second one deals with a sugarcane plantate, like, you know, he's like a peasant farmer um, who basically gets fucked over by his landlord. He's suddenly told that his land is not his anymore, the land that he's been working for 30 years or whatever. He's just been uh, seized. Yeah. Uh, the third one deals with, like, sort of student revolutionary climates. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one is, like, 
the Peter Stiff final cha- chapter in Caviva, Mexico, that depicts, you know, the revolutionary moment, you know, the glorious march of history. Within one man. I love the fourth story. It's basically about a rural farmer with his family. Like, a stranger comes into their house. And I thought the stranger was Fidel, but I guess there's this whole... He looks a bit like him, basically. Yeah, but they're just in the hills, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like in, that, in that outback or whatever. Someone comes into their house, and when they leave their house, they've radicalised. Yeah. This person was like, you know, oh, I don't really care about politics. Isn't for me. I don't really care yeah, about politics. alienated. Yeah. And the right. end of the film is a moment of, uh, you know, collective unity and power. So as a portrayal, even though it's a film all about post-revolution Cuba, it's exclusively a portrayal of pre-revolutionary Cuba, mm, mm. which is really interesting. But it definitely has revolutionary principles in terms of the art, the way they use the camera. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the most um, eye-catching <laughs> aspect of it. That It begins with an insane tracking shot that goes, uh, where the fuck doesn't it go? It, I guess it basically goes goes like around like a bourgeois pool party in like a... No? doesn't quite begin with that. It begins with the camera, like, literally coming out of a plane, or I guess Ugh. they flew the camera yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I guess the point is that it goes, like, up, down, underwater, all around. It's actually an astonishing feat of camera work. Uh, one of the most famous camera moves in it is this um, shot where the camera uh, seems to float through the sky, basically, during a funeral procession. Yeah, it floats uh, between two blocks yeah like, it's like a lahane you know really high but, up um, yeah and Laj lies les miserables which i saw, also saw this week has a lot of cool like drone photography cool yeah. um as a way to respond to that <laughs> need to watch it yeah yeah that sequence i'd seen in the story of film mark cousins's thing before and obviously it was like whoa i gotta watch that and i guess another thing that's so mad is this was 13 years before the steadicam was invented which i guess is the real marker of the traveling camera everyone says like the steady cam like i'll read took the camera to new places mm. or whatever uh, i think they're like kubrick or scorsese these kinds of people when um anderson recreated that shot uh, the very famous shot pretty much exactly the same for one of the scenes in boogie nights the shot going off the side of the elevator uh, right. the side of the building and then going yeah, into yeah. the swimming pool great homage don't really love boogie nights he used a Steadicam, I believe. Whereas this, they were having to improvise and using, like, you know, Soviet methods. For sure. I mean, it's an astonishing feat of uh, technical achievement, you know? Right. You are asking when you watch it, like, how the fuck do they do it, whether you want to or not. Like, it demands, it begs the question, you know? Yeah. It was like Avatar or something. <laughs> the sugarcane scene. So what I meant about, like, um, following the movements on screen like the camera is like is the scythe and the cuts are disorientating and you know it's a moment of agitation and like emotional distress and the camera like you know it's truly ra- radical in, in how it captures that through movement and it's so different to Eisenstein because there's barely any montage in this film most of it they're like they use the whole reel of film you're seeing like nine minutes 54 seconds like length tracking shots like there's very little editing at all apart from in that sequence that you said but mostly really long takes like in a way that you see in like Tarkovsky or something like that or like a lot of like 90s and 2000 cinema but it's I've never been more impressed by 
camera movement there's one thing to be like aware of technique and that like getting in the way of your enjoyment of the film but it is like it's not a fiction film you know it's like uh yes i'm thinking like quite a lot like oh fuck how did they film that shot or whatever they went so above definitely above but above and beyond to develop like you know a radical method of filmmaking never been seen before to tell you know the story of a revolution Perfect marriage of form and content, really. And, marriage you know, story. Yeah. <laughs> and as you referred to, that Scorsese quote is so true. Like, you know, it was shelved for so long because, uh, you know, the Russians weren't happy, really. The Cubans weren't happy. Just went in the shelf. And it would have changed the game. That's, that's entirely true. And Kalatazov was a successful filmmaker at the time as well. Like people were looking forward to his next film after The Cranes Are Flying, which was a huge international success. And this, he went so hard. You know? Yeah, it's, uh, it's astonishing. I believe it's on the movie library at the moment. Again, we both managed to somehow pick up DVD copies in uh, different charity shops, like in like a couple of days space small pounds to spend yeah, <laughs> yeah good to have that's definitely that's not going on the film grade depop coming soon yeah, cool. i think all of these russian films they should be easily accessible to interested listeners they definitely ought to be yeah it's a public need I have really enjoyed watching these uh, pieces of essential Soviet revolutionary propaganda this yeah. week. What a privilege, yeah. Absolutely. Should always go on. But um, this week has been marked by another thing, another piece of uh, government propaganda. Yeah, Mulan on Disney Plus for 20 quid. Is that what you're that, that oh. isn't actually, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, Chinese, American, you know. Fucking <laughs> Let's not get it. That looks awful, but I don't really like it. I don't watch Disney movies, unlike Eisenstein. I wonder what he'd make of it. But yes, this week has been uh, dominated by the return to cinemas. And the return to cinemas in a lot of countries is predicated on the release of this film. The 10th film by Christopher Nolan. Tenet, or Tenet, backwards. Uh, Have you got the press release? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Obviously, everyone's been going mad for this shit. It was the movie film of the week. Um, so, you know, not that people need an excuse to see it. It was actually the first film I went to see in the cinema since uh, Vitalina Varela back in March. And you were so sure it wasn't going to be as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, it was almost by accident, man. It literally had nothing to do with it being Tenet. Sham was like, had a bit of a rough day at work and was like, oh, I just want to go to the pictures, you know. What's in all the screens? It wasn't going to be the new mutants or whatever. We went to see Tenet. (laughs) It was, it was screening every 15 minutes at the view I went to see yeah. it at. Just to report on my experiences going to the cinema uh, before we get into the film, I guess. Um, Are you glad Christopher Nolan delivered this pleasurable <laughs> pleasurable experience with which to return to the Dream Palace? I've got to say, I found it like a super prangy experience. I went to my local Cineworld, and although they're doing social distancing, and I'm sure doing their utmost to keep it um, a sanitary environment, I did find it like... Uh, a distractingly, uh, you know, pandemic-y experience. But, you know, 
good thing the film uh, sort of dragged me into imagination land or whatever. Honestly, I... I feel like Dorothy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My <laughs> cinema was doing a lot to prevent piracy. A uh, member of staff came in about seven or eight times with the infrared camera to check people weren't filming it. I guess to prevent the the leak getting to American audiences. Right. I'm hoping for the Russian dub as a lot of people like the Russian cinema cam version like getting out mm. on Pirate Bay first or whatever. <laughs> uh, what's there to even say about Tenet? I guess L- Nolan for our generation is one of the uh, sort of premier auteurs. It's just a ludicrous thing to say, but I guess from um, Inception is obviously, you know, the most mind-bending film of all time. Um, Memento, I guess, when we were growing up, was like, a, oh, have you seen Memento? Like, it's an art film or whatever. Mm. It's astonishing to me that no... Have you seen The Dark Knight? It's an <laughs> art film. Yeah, well, I mean, people uh, load his comic book adaptations with a sort of prestige which uh, belies their subject matter. The, but... clown, the clown who plays Batman, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just... I don't know. Well, let's not even talk about the Batman films because yeah, I don't know. Listen to Michael and us or something if you want. Sure. The, if you want the real take, sure, they're rubbish. Yeah, I I feel like I saw Batman Begins like so many times when I was younger, just because I had it on DVD. But like, oh. let's talk about Tenet. Let's fuck Batman. I like Dunkirk. Like, I yeah, Dunkirk okay, I say yeah, pretty good. Dunkirk was one of the busiest cinema screenings I've ever been to. It's one of the biggest grossing films at the UK box office of all time. Really? I think well, it's in the top I mean, three, top yeah, five. Not surprised. That certainly translates to my experience where we accidentally sat in the front row. Um. Perfect. The real bombardment. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's a cool... way better than the the 1917 from this year, the worst film yeah. of 2020. And on this episode, I just want to say, if you're making a film called 1917 with no acknowledgement of the glorious global event that ha- that happened in 1917, what sort of, what sort of film title is that? You know, I prefer Eisenstein's 1917 to Sam Mendes's. Tenet. What's that to say? <laughs> I'm gonna keep saying that. Cinema is back. Movies. <laughs> Have you seen the Tom Cruise video? Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love movies. Big movies. Yeah, yeah cinema. <laughs> Back at the movies, baby. I mean, it's an extremely, um, it's an extremely like straightforward like action film, basically, with a, a, a sci-fi conceit reminiscent of you know the butterfly effect, source code, live die repeat, aka Edge of Tomorrow. These like basic bitch films about like oh the grandfather paradox or whatever. Uh, yeah, well, um, which is like God, allu- they bring up the grandfather <laughs> paradox so many times in yeah, this movie. Honestly. I like all the films you mentioned a lot more than this, by the way. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Source code, especially. Oh. Yeah, the cruise one, uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Great, aka live die repeat. Um, <laughs> is, you know, these are films that play with their concept. This is a film that says to you, to the audience, don't think about it, just feel it, or whatever. And then that's, you know... But he writes such such heavy conceits into all his films. Even Dunkirk was so about time and has this, like, huge gimmick. But at least the gimmick is sort of pleasurable to experience. This, it's like, they just explain it away, or it's like, you know... They released that first 10-minute sequence before Star Wars at the IMAX. I would have been fucked off. I would have been gone out to the manager and said, you're showing me some bullshit shadow state propaganda. CIA propaganda, yeah, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. But you would not have known how lucky you were to witness it in the glorious IMAX (laughs) compared to the... I think I I saw it on 35mm. I mean, that's cool. But the sound was atrocious. Mm. And supposedly you got to go see it in IMAX to really be able to hear the dialogue. Low it, mate. 
smell the bullshit as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a, as you alluded to, it's a film that pivots around its um, temporal conceit or whatever, quotation marks. And I just didn't feel like it had fun with it at all. It's a gimmick that it doesn't lean into at any point. I feel like there was like one bit at like the Denimont where it's like, you know, it's literally like a Call of Duty mission, that that sequence. Absolute dog shit. Totally so. disrupts the idea that the film's going to be like a, a palindrome because they just have to tack on this thing. It feel- it's like, it feels incomplete, like gave Viva Mexico or whatever, you know, they could have fucking... Yeah. There's far too much exposition, but they didn't really make sense or like explain like... For sure. Concretely what the hell is going on in this film until the very last scene. Yeah. I guess in that sequence there are a few bits where like, I just didn't understand like, that, okay, there was one bit where like someone gets sucked into a wall backwards, sort of jokes. Like that should be happening like every 10 seconds. If that's what 100%. you want, load the frame with it. Don't have like a whole mission predicated on like half the people walking backwards where it doesn't even seem to factor into what's going on yeah, in the because, slightest. Yeah, because the, the montage, the Eisenstein montage is not effect- <laughs> effective enough. So you don't even know when people are going backwards or forwards, really. Like I'd say the same thing about... Um, Flutter D as well, where she used that backwards flow a lot more, to be honest, I feel in his tunes. So you know, yeah, backwards flow. But what they know about the backwards flow? No, I ain't never been an actor, though. No, I ain't never been an actor. I skip us, I skip backwards flow. But what they know about the backwards flow? Might see me hat on backwards. If we were talking about like Eisenstein and these like historical filmic hermeneutics, let's talk about MacGuffins, because this film has an extremely egregious Avengers-level MacGuffin, where it's like a stick with some, like, galaxy slices on it or something. Are you shitting me? No. Honestly, I... Smartest filmmaker in the world. He can he consulted <laughs> Nobel Prize winning physicists. <laughs> I was so far uh, tapped out by the point that they started brandishing this like the wand of truth. <laughs> yeah, the wand oh of my time. God, are you sh- actually shit. They put me? you put the Horcruxes together. <laughs> yeah, and then you destroy the universe. <laughs> yeah, fucking I'm sorry. Hell. Yeah, oh, come uh, on. Yeah. As a spy film, do you like Bond? This no, year? I hate no, James Bond, no. man. I mean, obviously, Bond is a extremely misogynistic dated property but you know this I guess film was misogynistic as well well, we'll, well yeah down. yeah yeah but i guess there's like a certain like thrill again hand quotes to like spy films but again I, the whole time i was sense. just like <laughs> fucked off i like the fact that like <sighs> i was just fucked off guys i was yeah. just fucked off. yeah it's not well it sounds like you were pranging a little bit in the cinema as well like your cinematic experience is a bit like not social distance enough no one was wearing masks for example yeah that's, said, fu- that's fucked up that's fucked up yeah. But I was pissed off as well, and there was like no one in my screening. I was pissed off. I wanted it to end. I thought, you know, I didn't go into it with an open heart, you know. Like I really tried to because I thought, you know, come on, come on, Nolan, give me the juice. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, come on, like I wanted to be impartial and like, you know, oh. I didn't want to go in thinking like this guy's like a neoliberal like puppet or whatever. He's a Tory man. He's like, yeah, He's straight conservative. <laughs> um. Someone referred to this and Inception as Tory anime on Twitter, which is fire, you know, it's very on point. But they should do a podcast. Just really unsatisfying. I was quite down as well. The first like half an hour, it's like, oh, this is kind of jokes. Big oh. fans of our pats here. It's true. We're not recording in my house, but shout out, shout out the God. He was good as well. I'm I'm looking forward the to the performances were good. I like him in I like him in supporting roles because like same with the Lost City of Zed where he just plays like a sort of quirky character. But his quirks get less and less cool as the film goes on as you realise he's just trying to set up like 
the sequel to this film or whatever. Yeah, oh my god. I mean, uh we watched It's Alive. We watched yeah, It's yeah. Alive like many weeks ago, uh near the beginning of the film lockdown film club, and again, like it was that levels of uh sequel setup where like at the end it's like we're actually friends in the future, but I'm about Spoilers ahead. <laughs> but I'm about to die now. Like again, like in this time travel. Protagonist, this is the middle of a beautiful friendship. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> Casablanca episode soon. Uh John David Washington. Yeah, he's good. It's good. He was good at looking. Not much to do. Nah. Didn't have like pfft. looking up at um what's her name? Bitsky. Yeah. <laughs> Should have given him a box. <laughs> She was rubbish as cruise well. Cruise style. Um, yeah, cruise style for sure. No, he's good at looking really, really serious and really intense. Like, he had that look in his eyes, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, I bought it. Like, I, honestly, it wasn't anything wrong with the performances for me, apart from Kenneth Branagh's uh, I want to drink your blood style uh, ru- Russian. Uh, Bought, he was born in the middle of a nuclear test or something like that. Yeah. On, this whole, like... It was russophobic. The treatment of... Yeah. <laughs> Straight up. You know, obviously, like I'm, I'm oligarchophobic as well. <laughs> but it was so regressive that, and the characterization of Elizabeth Debicki's character, like supposedly a huge step forward for Nolan in terms of his depiction of women. They'd have you believe that if you read certain magazines. Um, <laughs> but all they do is, it's just now she has instead of like it's a dead wife, it's just like oh, it's a living wife who has a son and like. Her whole thing is, and like, that's how oh, really what, that's where the meaning son. in her life comes from. Yeah. Even though, like, there are no scenes like actually uh, uh, explicating that or developing it anyway. It's just like a sort of ontological given because she's a woman. Yeah, classic uh, vibes. Yeah, I guess that's sort of like unreconstructed. Uh, that's what it is. It's so conservative. Yeah, even yeah. for like being, ra- it just fucks me off, man. That like. Nolan is seen as like you know the artiste of uh, Anglo-American cinema. Yeah, especially uh, and and like the artiste of like a hundred million plus budget cinema. But people were saying the same stuff about Kubrick in the seventies. Yeah, that's as well. what I was going to say, man. Like uh, in this uh, sight and sound article that you uh, alluded to, very um, sensitively omitted. I don't get um, how they did it. It's literally a press release that uh, that cover article. Christopher Nolan's on the cover, but it's not an interview with Christopher Nolan. But it's like it can't. There's no review in the back bit, so I guess it's the like ten-page review of Tenet. Yeah, but it says nothing at all. No, it's no. literally just like oh, and hotly anticipated. Like all these like oh, fans will be watching it forever on Blu-ray. Like it's literally <laughs> this like sort of ana- That's the scope of the analysis. Well, I feel like Sight and Sound maybe is sliding a little bit out of Nick James's tenure, but this is maybe an unfair thing to say about Mike Williams, the, the new editor. So he did write a very earnest piece about his old Dream Palace in Wrexham that is reopening to screen Tenet. For the, is, it, like, it was destroyed in a fire. This oh, film. the stuff of dreams. The stuff of dreams. But they're reopening <laughs> because cinema's back, baby. And yeah, you can go great. see Tenet at this place now. I'm sorry, um, in that article, they make the comparison between Nolan and, and Kubrick as like... Everyone you know, makes that They both crap. found a home at Warner Bros. These like auteurs who were like the big brain edgelords. Sorry, Kubrick has literally nothing like Nolan. I think he's overrated as much as Nolan is in certain ways, but Nolan definitely more, rips but... him off. Nolan, the cinephile, maybe there's something to be said for it. Certainly not in these films, but the only time we've seen greed in the cinema was at the BFI 
as part of Christopher Nolan programming season, I also saw Dr. Mabuse the Gambler. Yeah, we could that. have seen Oazar Balthazar programmed by Joanna Hogg if we were lucky. True. But True. <laughs> I Fair think enough. that but means fuck all. But the BFI, you know, he's obviously the biggest British filmmaker. Yeah. I hate all British films. I've gone on the record, like, apart from like, <laughs> Mike Lee. I've said it on the pod before. Yeah. Like, I don't like any British cinema. This isn't British cinema, even though it's got one, one little street scene in Hampstead that you see three times. Yeah, literally the bougiest school you can imagine they, where it's like, you know, they're all dressed as sailors or whatever. <laughs> but they, the BFI do have a responsibility because they run the biggest cinema in the UK, the BFI IMAX. Mm. So much of Nolan's shit is like, oh yeah, he shot on IMAX because it's the only medium the capable only of real carrying, film the, yeah, capable yeah. of carrying his cinematic <laughs> vision it's like okay cool i really wanted to go see the goddard's the image book at the imax for the london film festival didn't happen sadly but in their screen intended you know you got to go to the imax to see this film guys it's because you can't hear the dialogue otherwise you can't hear the characters telling you not to think about what you're seeing <laughs> yeah i was like obviously all the dialogue in this film is bullshit and like no one talks about anything but the plot given like you know it's not a hangout movie how else are you gonna understand what's going on bro unless someone's explaining it to you but it's insufficient you couldn't cut out a line of dialogue in this film because the whole thing would like fall apart because they're just explaining shit as they go along or whatever same with inception but jesus come on you know yeah really ticked uh so few boxes for me that it but yeah, barely even registered as a filmic experience, to be the, honest. The temporal pincer movement. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. Little... oh my god. There should have been way more backwards. That shit. means I was like running away while I was sitting there watching it in my brain. <laughs> yeah, I was straight up waiting for it to end 30 minutes into the film. And I knew there was so much more to come. And then I had to see it all again. After, but as you said, it's like a fake out having, um, you know, th- there is no like real palindromic structure. You know, fans of the Sata Stone will be disappointed. Fans of another really long film <laughs> that we've talked about on this podcast before that has a truly arc based structure, a truly like, what is it? It mirrors itself as a halfway point in the film and then the film sort of. Uh, yeah, an unfolding or whatever. Bellatar's Satan Tango. Love it. Way longer. Way better. At least commits to the concept as well. Yeah. This film, it's no Satan Tango, guys. It's, uh... It's Call of Duty. Uh, yeah. Wolf. Sealed off with the Travis Scott tune over the credits. The missing piece of the puzzle, quote Christopher Nolan. God. The epitome of just, like... The last, like, Avengers rig or whatever the fuck it is. But it's like... just... <laughs> oh... But it's just an exercise in design, you know, and I don't know what the aesthetics are. Saying that, I felt like, aesthetically, it fell short at literally every hurdle yeah. that it came up to. I don't know what it is about these shots in um, ship interiors that Nolan manages to make so fucking boring. Mm. Like, he's got to watch The Long Voyage Home. I'm sorry. Sure. Just before, if you're going to take six years doing, doing prep, buddy... Put that in it was up to 10. Uh-huh. I think it was 10, ten years. Ten years. Oh. Getting ready to, you know, work out the conceptual framework for Tenet. Yeah. What? The, the gun goes bang. <laughs> the gun goes... Gun goes... G- g- Ganab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Because of entropy. It's entropy, yeah. baby. It's quantum, dude. Yeah. Oh. Also, I'd, um, I'd been... 
I think I was reading some like queer history stuff just before this, mm. and um, invert or inversion is like a sort of antiquated euphemism for um, like atypical sexualities okay. in the pre-modern era. So like for uh, just every time they said inversion, I just like thought it was like some sort of... Uh... <laughs> Pales in comparison to The Matrix. Certainly yeah. <laughs> big, you know, the, for the trans allegory stuff. Certainly compa- pales in comparison to The Matrix sequels. I mean, they got Cornell West in them, you know. And they've got more like crazy concepts that, you, you know, you kind of go along with, I think. I don't know. It's impossible to go along with the concepts in this film, though, because they don't, they don't even it tells satisfy themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing to feel either. It's such a serious film. Like, Cold. There's no, there's no fun to be had, really, to me. Like, because it's so... Oh, it's, it's no fun at all. Dun, 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 dun. No fun, my babe. No fun. It's... <laughs> It's just knocking you over the head with the same shit. Unknocking you over the... (laughs) Fucking hell. Yeah. But cinema's back. Thank you, Nolan, for staking, you know, the health of the global cinema-going population. He's got a big stake in the film, so, you know, in the cinematic returns of the film or something, I think. All right. But that explains part of, like, why... They've made such a bit. I mean, we've been reading about the releases. For, if you like, you know, follow any film news website on Twitter, apart from the cool ones, like they they've been covering the like the step by step like release program of this film and the delays, like as if it's like literally the most important thing in the, the fifth world. gospel or whatever. Like, yeah, come on, man. So yeah, you can check out Tenet at your local multiplex. You got it. And it's, it's, the kind of film, <laughs> it's the kind of film you've got to see twice as well to really uh, make sense of it. So. Yeah, you've got to watch it backwards, upside down, you know. <laughs> Our next episode is about another galaxy brain in uh, cinema that, you know, certainly growing up our ages, like these are the great minds of contemporary, like Anglo-American cinema that you get introduced to or whatever. For real. If I was a real one, Eternal Sunshine, the spotless mind would be in my letterbox top four of all time because, like, I think that's a legit masterpiece. We're going to be talking Charlie Kaufman. We're going to be talking about his Netflix film. I'm thinking of ending things. Maybe chat about his book, Ant Kind, a little bit. And yeah, just talk about all these cool films he made. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Looking forward to watching some actual high concept material as well that I know will be more satisfying. Mm. And I'm looking forward to re-watching these propaganda films because even though they're not the sort of film you need to see multiple times to like get the meaning of, I want to watch them again because they're cool and fun and well-made. Yeah, for sure. You can follow the links in our episode description and please check them out. We're starting a Depop account. Yes, that's true. Yeah. The Rice Lip Film Archive. <laughs> Just to take one, one closer step to being Greg inspired. But yeah, we're going to be selling a bunch of really sick films that we have on DVD at really low, low prices, you know. So check it out. Yeah. I've been Temmut. <laughs> I've been the Black Mass. <laughs> and you've been listening to Film Grays. Thanks for listening. Cheers, folks. <laughs>